I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on tonight's episode. The defense stands tall against Rocky Top. Napier leans on the running game and gets it done. The Gators land another commitment, this time in the class of 2025. And we'll wrap up with a preview of Saturday's home game with Charlotte. Will, hell of a Saturday in the swamp, man. Well, you were right. You're now two and zero on the season. I'm zero and two with the picks. So basically, I'm going to pick against Florida from here on out because every time I pick against them, <laughs> they go out and play awesome and uh, and take it to the opposition. So uh, you know, look, I'll uh, I'll I'll eat my crow. I'll take it. And look, the Gators went out there, played really well, and it's good that uh, obviously it's awesome that they did because it sets them up for some success in the SEC. How much success we'll see, but but certainly sets them up much better than it would have been had, had it been the alternative. Yeah, hey, Billy Napier can use you as bulletin board material anytime he needs here. Let's let's jump right in. The defense led the way. 20 of 34, 287 yards, two touchdowns, one interception. That was the extent of the damage done by offseason darling Joe Milton. Will, did you know the man can throw it 90 yards? Man, I don't know how many times we've heard it uh, this offseason here, but – Better yet, Will, 100 yards on the ground on 30 attempts. This defense stood up, and they got off the field on schedule. If you look at it on the surface, 8 of 15 on third down conversions, not the most amazing number, but five of those eight third down conversions came on the Volunteers' three scoring drives. All right? That means in their other uh, – Tennessee only managed to convert three third downs across eight other drives. They were also 0 for 3 on fourth downs, including a massive fourth and one stand uh, late in the third quarter there when Jalen Wright was tackled in the backfield. After a, a little bit of a controversial stop by the official, hold by the official there, I think potentially they bumped the ball. I believe the ref might have bumped the ball on that, stopped the play, and the Gators were able to sub in and get the tackle in the backfield. Hypel was not happy about that play. Uh, Joe Milton. Uh, also has a couple incomplete passes on two other fourth downs, including one late to Brew McCoy where he's under pressure. Will, we saw a lot of creativity from this defense. We saw this defense. I, I loved it. Seeing hats fly around, multiple hats on the ball constantly. We really saw what this defense can become on Saturday night against Tennessee. Now, caveat, how good is Tennessee actually after watching that game? We 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 don't know if this isn't Hendon Hooker's offense from last year, but I, I'm not going to take it away from him. Well, we we played, we executed, we did what we needed to do, and uh, man, if this defense can play well throughout the season, quite a different uh, quite a different pros quite different prospects for this team in 2023. Yeah, I mean, look, it was it was the number eleven ranked team in the country coming into your house, favored by six and a half points, and it was a butt whipping in the first half, twenty six to seven going into the half. A lot of that rested on the defense. Now, I will say that the defense was the difference in the second quarter. So, eight point six yards per play allowed in the first quarter, five point five in the third, seven point five in the fourth. 2.5 in the second. So they really ratcheted things up in the second. And then the offense obviously was able to convert when the defense was able to turn them over um, and, and then also get them to punt deep in their own territory. Tennessee didn't do themselves a lot of favors, a lot of false starts that set them back to first and 15, second and 15, those sorts of things. Um, look, I think, I think there's a lot of questions out there about how good the volunteers are, but look, this is a team that scored 49 against Virginia. 
and and scored what something like 35 or 40 against Austin P. So they're averaging 40 points a game and Florida holds them to 16. So um, not a whole lot of complaints for me on the defensive side. I think there's some underlying stats that maybe suggest um, that if they played again, that Tennessee would score more points. But I think that's pretty obvious, right? Tennessee's turned the ball over in Florida territory on downs three different times. That obviously means that Florida was able to make the play, but you're not going to make that play every time. And so the fact that Florida was able to make it every time means they get out with only 16 points scored. Um, As far as the kick ball is concerned, all the officiating, all that sort of stuff. I mean, look, there wasn't an OPI called on the big bomb that that opened up the the game um, for Tennessee. Big bombs, by the way. Well, nice but nice little Heisman by uh, McCoy on the second one too. Yeah, the put the push with the hands is something that you'll see people get away with. Yeah, but the full extension with the arm is not. That, that uh, was a know. little different. That was a little irrespective. Different. I mean, look, the officiating was suspect, but this is the SEC. The officiating was suspect. Yeah. And when you lose by 13, um, yeah. you know, you got beat. And it's not like it was, oh, Florida pulled away with a late touchdown because of a bad call. It was Florida was ahead the whole time and then was holding on like grim death for the third and fourth quarter, especially on the offensive side of the ball. I'm not sure Graham Mertz could actually throw the ball. He threw a first down to Caleb Douglas, like to start the third quarter and then never threw the ball again. <laughs> so. So it was pretty clear they were trying to protect the quarterback. But, I mean, look, we just had all offseason long that the front seven and specifically the front four was going to have to be better this year. And, you know, look, I think I think Scooby Williams might end up being an all-SEC level linebacker. I think Shamar James might be an all-American linebacker. And the fact that those guys are roaming free, that fourth down play where Scooby Williams comes in and makes the stop, he had touched. And what does that tell you about the defensive line and their ability to occupy offensive linemen? Yes, it was fresh guys who've been brought in. Yes, there was a little bit of confusion for Tennessee because of the clock or, or because of the kicking of the ball and all those different things. But Scooby Williams didn't get touched, which means the guys up front were occupying multiple offensive line blockers and allowed the linebacker to roam free. And that's the big difference in this defense this year compared to last year is not only are those linebackers skilled, but those linebackers are not getting absolutely mauled by pulling guards and pulling tackles. And so, look, the defense is a lot better this year. I think there are still some things that, you know, you look at and go, "Eh, I think we need to do that a little bit better. But, you know, the the two plays that jump out to me, there were two specifically. One is there was a play where Shamar James shifted before the Tennessee wide receiver shifted. And then they threw a screen out to the wide receiver who just shifted and James played it perfectly, remained outside, got outside leverage, forced it back to his teammates to make the tackle. James didn't make the tackle, but he had seen that on film. He knew exactly what was coming, and he shifted before Tennessee did. That's impressive. The other one was Jordan Castell on, on on a third down play to open up the second half. Um, if Tennessee converts that third down, all of a sudden maybe they go in for a touchdown. It starts to get a little, you know, 24, six or 26 to 14. It's starting to get a little bit tight. Everybody's starting to pucker up a little bit. Instead, Castell comes down, jumps one of the, one of the slant routes. They go for the other slant route and Jalen Kimber does a really nice job of breaking it up. But the reality is the fact that they had to go to the outside slant is because Castell came up and broke up the inside slant, which was exactly where Tennessee and where Joe Milton wanted to go. So, um, look, I think if I'm if I'm grading this, I'm I'm saying the defense was like a B plus. I think there's some things they can do better. Certainly, the big plays are things they need to watch out for, even even with the OPIs. Right, that's not always going to get called. You can't allow yourself to get in that situation. You need to be in phase with the wide receivers, and both times the defensive backs lost phase with the the guys running the routes one time it was because they ran into a scrum one time it was because they were behind already and then you got the extension of the arm but if you extend an arm on somebody who's sitting there with you in phase they're going to call the opi 
It's the fact that he was already beat and then extended his arm. That was what that was why it didn't actually come. So um, very good performance by the defense. I think there's still room for them to grow, but that's the exciting part, right? Is that this is freshmen and sophomores out there playing significant minutes. The best player on the field was Shamar James. He's a true sophomore. Jordan Castell was an SEC player of the week. He's a true freshman. You've got Scooby Williams, relatively young. You've got um, McClellan, relatively young. Banks and Jackson making plays out there too that were added in the transfer portal. So really the additions, if you include the young guys and the transfers, high impact so far. Well, and it's really nice that we don't have to watch Trey Dean and Rashad Torrance and, and, uh, you know, Brenton Cox and those sorts of guys out there on defense. I mean, for three straight years, we kept waiting for, for that to sort of turn around and it just never really did. And so I think fresh blood was necessary, not, not necessarily because those are bad guys or anything like that, but just from the standpoint of what Florida's defense has been for the last three years, it's been really a lot of the same personnel, obviously a lot of turnover with Napier this year. That doesn't mean you're going to have some growing pains, right? I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like they give up big plays in a way that, uh, you know, when they give them up, they're enormous, right? Like, like, it's not like, oh, we gave up 21 yards. It's like, no, nah, we gave up 47 there. And but, and but those you sorts still, you could draw a line on most of those plays. Like we talked about the one. So the first big completion on that on that opening drive from Tennessee, you look at Brew McCoy. I don't know how that wasn't called uh, offensive pass interference because he ran directly into Mitchell, but he did the thing where he pretended like he wasn't setting a screen absolutely leveled Mitchell to the point where Mitchell had to stop, got hit and stopped. And that's the only reason why the guy got by Mitchell. And then uh, later on that passed to McCoy too. He, he, he did beat Jackson down the sideline, but he, a little stiff arm helped to get open. So you could draw more straight lines on, on what's going on with his defense when they do have some breakdowns. And there's not just guys roaming free on third down like there was last year. In the last well, that's few de- years, that's really. definitely true. What yeah. what I would say is the thing that the thing that impressed me the most about this game is that Austin Armstrong decided to go five guys in the box a lot, and then six yeah. guys if he only had five. And he played a lot of coverage, and that was something that I wasn't sure he was going to do. I thought he was going to blitz, play a lot of single high safety where you were leaving guys out on islands. And they only did that a few times. Now, the problem is, is regardless of whether you want to argue about the OPIs or not, the the reality is, is that on those plays, they were playing single high safeties, leaving man-to-man coverage on the outside. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the one to McCoy, but the one where they had the one you're talking about with the with the obvious OPI where McCoy was the guy who get, did the picking. Um, you know, that one was something where they had one safety deep. They clear they clearly were trying to bring a little bit of pressure and and Tennessee diagnosed it immediately and made the throw. They didn't do that very much though the entire game. They sat back there in a zone, said Joe Milton beat us, and actually really said run the ball. And one of the more impressive parts of the entire game, I think, for the defense was the third quarter, the first drive for Tennessee. Austin Armstrong was really patient. He sat back in a shell and said, Tennessee, you want to run six minutes off the clock and go down the field and kick a field goal? I'm okay with that. And really, that was sort of the strategy the whole second half was we're going to make you work your way down the field seven yards at a time, five yards at a time, three yards at a time. We're going to force you to run the ball because we're not going to put anybody in the box. And then at the end of the day, it's going to take you five minutes to get down the field. And hey, if we get a stop, great. But even if you score, 
you just wasted five minutes off the clock. And with the new clock rules, if you're up 26 to seven going into the half, you know, it's going to be really difficult for another team to take over if you can hold on to the ball at all. Now, look, I mean, Tennessee gave them a few gifts. Um, obviously, the offsides there with <laughs> in their own territory on fourth and inches. Um, you know, I've never seen the guy jump offsides like that on a shotgun snap. Usually it's a guy up at the line of scrimmage trying to get him to jump, right? Mertz claps, the guy jumps offsides, Florida gets another two, two and a half minutes Napier, off the clock. Double arms in the air to celebrate. That was great. There were a lot of things like that. And and the interesting thing is if you think about how Florida played and, you know, we talked about operational excellence and how big of a struggle that was for the Florida organization at Utah. It was honestly the exact same thing with Tennessee in this one. And it's not really, uh, you know, this is really Tennessee's first test on the road this year. And that it just is what it is. So for those of you who are, are questioning, you know, should we be opening with these games like Utah? Florida absolutely benefited from that Utah trip. They came out. There's something about getting out there and experiencing uh, the game at full speed. You know, the McNeese State game I talked about last week, I love what I love that I saw from it was the execution. We executed in a way that we haven't done in, in those games previously. I didn't care that it was McNeese State. I cared that we executed well, right? And you go out, and, and, and that's what they did on Saturday night, too. They, 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 You can see they carried that over very well. Will, the one area that I really still have concerns with with this football team is special teams, uh, particularly <laughs> particularly the kicking game. But we finally may have seen the shift from Adam Mihalik over to Trey Smack, and, and Smack uh, converts on a couple kicks there late. But uh, blocked extra point out the gate, or a missed field goal in, in, in a, a low low extra point might have cost me hey look his job finally here yeah well i mean look team's not good enough to give up points i mean we, we need a kicker on this team right well and the yeah. fact that they were only up by 13 when tennessee was driving down the field there with like seven minutes left in the fourth quarter right was something where you and i were both sitting there i guarantee you going wow it'd be really nice to have that extra point and the not and not have gone for two on the other one and be up 31 to 16 and all of a sudden you're a touchdown a two-point conversion and a touchdown an extra point away from being tied as opposed to you're up by 13 and you're two touchdowns two extra points from being behind right and then you're relying on a guy like smack to make a game winner i mean look he made a 27 yard field goal made both extra points but that's his job right he's supposed to go out there and be up like you're supposed to be able to make an extra point as a kicker and mihalik was just putting it right into the defensive line and, and you can't have that and and uh you know irrespective of what these guys look like in practice in the games Mihalik has really struggled and so yeah I expect that we're probably going to see Smack for the rest of the year now the question is is Smack any more reliable once you get him out there because I mean ostensibly out by Mihalik in practice clearly well that's what I'm saying ostensibly in practice he's getting beat out so there's some I I wouldn't expect this to be some giant upgrade but I mean geez just making extra points and 30 yard field goals would be an upgrade at this point so it it was time for Napier to make the move and and that carried over from the end of last season that was my issue with Mihalik where I was looking at that after he missed I'm like when are we going to make this shift and he finally does it in game there so that that was the trend at the end of last season too Mihalik was missing some kicks so it's good to see Smack get an opportunity and obviously hey if Smack starts missing kicks again hope Mihalik gets another shot at that point but hopefully Smack is the solution there at at kicker and we can at least solve one aspect of special teams because I, I'm not even going to get into the other. We won't even bother with the others at the moment here. Will, let's focus. Let's keep this a good-natured episode. It's a great win against Tennessee here. So we could shift it over. Well, before we do, before we go to the offense, I, I, I'm almost ready to knock, knock on wood here, Will, but uh, 
are, are we good on defense? Is this is this are, are we ready to say we're good on defense again? I, I think I'm almost ready to say it. I think I, I'm ready to say it. hell. I am ready to say it. We're, I think we're good on defense. I have an article coming next week. Um, I want to I want to oh keep this. It wasn't uh, yes. I, you know, I didn't get a yes right away. So I, I want to keep this week's positive. I've got an article next week that's going to be talking about uh, talking about. Look, there's no doubt the defense is better. But it has warts. And the question is, sure. what are those warts going to mean moving forward, right? But as far as is the defense better than last year, does it give you an opportunity to get off the field? If we had Anthony Richardson at quarterback right now, would we be 3-0? and Like, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, I, I, I think there are – if Florida was averaging 35 points a game, they'd be 3-0. and And this defense with last year's team would have been a really – tough out in the sec now do they win as many as tennessee do they take out georgia those are things we don't know but there's no losing to vanderbilt last year with this defense there's probably no losing to 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 florida state if they have this defense so yeah i mean the defense is much much better how good i think is honestly a we're going to find out as we see what happens with utah and tennessee because utah and tennessee have struggled on the offensive side of the ball um, in games where they haven't played Florida. And so the fact that they struggled against Florida is partly Florida's defense. You can see the progress, but how much of that progress is the opponents and how much of that progress is Florida is something that I think is still probably a little bit up in the air. But the good part is our upcoming opponents, Charlotte, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, even South Carolina, Rattler's playing well, statistically. That offensive line is not at Carolina. So it there, there's definitely – we don't have any truly elite offenses coming up in the next few games, so plenty of uh, plenty of room for the defense to get their feet under them still under first-year defense coordinator Austin Armstrong. And I, I like what I've seen to this early, early part of the season. I chalked Utah up to a little bit of a statistical – anomaly there when florida's when you hold the ball for 10 minutes in the fourth quarter your yardage is going to look pretty good but hey they stood the test against tennessee this this tennessee was firing at them and we saw that that second half if the defense lets up on a couple of those drives the game's a lot more interesting the defense did stand up when it mattered most and, and i saw different things like you you point out the shamar james which by the way if you haven't read will's uh breakdown of the uh, tennessee game in his uh, Sunday article, I would highly recommend you go check that out because he plays some great clips from this defense, but including the, that Shamar James uh, clip that he referenced where James recognizes the motion before the motion occurs. But who's showing them that film? Who's putting them in the right place at the right time? And it just seems like there's there's not a lot of broken coverages on this team. And, and even the coverages were getting beat on. There was a seam route down the middle. Uh, there was a seam route. Uh, where Jadon Hill just got beat, but he was there in coverage, right? You're going to lose some battles here and there, but the coverage is there. There's not the wide open holes that we've seen the last few years. It just seems like a, a unit that's been cleaned up quite a bit on that defensive side. Yeah, man, look, I, I think um, I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade. I thought the defense played really well. I think there are clearly signs of progress under Austin Armstrong, yep. which is all we asked for last year with Patrick Tony. The defense didn't have to be great. It just had to not suck as bad in the FSU game as it did in the Tennessee game, and it just got progressively worse. And so that honestly was the thing that was disappointing last year. Wasn't that the defense was bad. It was that, I mean, we had a poll on read and reaction at some point. I think it was after the, I think it was after the South Carolina game where it was how many points will Florida's defense give up on average for the rest of the year. And there was a, there was a prize attached to it. The person who won the prize guessed 42 points a game. 
So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was like the Bob Barker closest without going over was 42 points a game. So that's where we're coming from. Right. So 16 against a Tennessee team that you gave up 38 against last year, obviously the quarterback's different, the weapons they have on the outside, you know, no Jalen Hyatt and, and other things as well, a lot different. obviously a very different offense, but look, Heupel has scored everywhere he's gone. Right. And this, right. this was actually my case for Tennessee. Like I thought Tennessee taking a step back was going to be their defense. And we'll talk about that in a second, but the, um, I know I didn't imagine the offense was going to take some giant step back. I thought Milton would be worse than Hendon Hooker. I thought they'd have to find other weapons, but I thought that Heupel would be able to scheme his way into 24 to 30 points a game irrespective of who his quarterback was. And Florida was able to stop him and keep him under that. And I think we'll see that as the season progresses. I still expect Tennessee to have a very effective offense. I don't think it's going to be like it was last year. It was like a top two offense in the country last year. But I still expect him to be top 20. And that means that Florida's defense did a pretty good job against a top 20 offense. And that's that's something you got to give kudos to Armstrong for. Yeah, Armstrong, great job so far. Great job so far early on. Let's go on the offensive side of the ball. ETN, 23 carries, 172 yards and a touchdown. Johnson, only 23 carries uh, or only 23 yards on 12 carries, but he also found the end zone on the ground. Lesser numbers, found the end zone for a second time, though, through the air on a little screen pass there for 18 yards where he had a good move to get in the end zone. And once again, you see the pattern. When the offense gets the ball into ETN and Johnson's hands, good things happen. 36 combined touches on the night for these two. We've been repeating the same mantra around here for a while now. Now Feed two, feed seven. But Will, you suggested an update to that in your article this week. Yeah, man, switch them. Feed seven, feed two. <laughs> it's uh, ETN is special, man. Like, and, and you know what? It's not like you get into – like I posted something on, on Twitter and it were on X and it was, you know, that I think I, what I said was I like Montreal Johnson, but it feels different when ETN's in the game. And when I went back and actually looked at the film and again, you referenced my article, you can go back and look at some of the clips, but when you, when you went back and looked at the film, it's his acceleration to top speed. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure he's the fastest guy out there, but the minute he puts his foot in the ground and decides to go, he's going top speed. And you could see it. There was a play where he made a jump cut and he had a defensive end right on his tail, right as he made the jump cut. And the defensive end got left in the dust and the defensive end was already running as ETN was doing the jump cut. So he puts his foot in the ground and is immediately going faster than the defensive end. And it turned out a linebacker from the secondary had to come in and stop ETN, stopped him like in the red zone. It was that last drive where they got the field goal was, was the play where that, where that was happening. But you know, a defensive end who's running full speed coming from the other side of the formation, when a running back does a jump cut, should be able to get the running back from behind and get him on the ground. If nothing else, he should at least be able to jump like on his back and sort of slow him down so his teammates can get there. Defensive end just got left in the dust completely. And, you know, look, Florida ran for 183 yards. Now, some of that is negative yards for Mertz and the team and things like that. But 183 yards, he had 172 of them. So, you know, in terms of who was the person who was who was really stirring the drink in this particular game, it was Trevor Etienne. And it wasn't just like, oh, five yards in a cloud of dust. I mean, he puts up the big 62-yard run for the touchdown. Now, obviously, number five for Tennessee just sort of gave him a love tap. What, what an effort. What an effort on that play. <laughs> I mean. But, but still, I mean, look. Tackled as well as he boxes. Well, and and the, the, the other thing is Florida had two explosive plays all night. Both of them were from Etienne. 
And and that, I think, is the thing that when you talk about, look, when you put it in these guys' hands, things happen. Like, that's the thing. That's why you feed seven. That's why you feed two. Because those are the guys who have the capability of providing explosive plays. It's those guys. It's Ricky Pearsall and it's Eugene Wilson. And Trey Wilson got hurt in this one, so he was out after the first quarter. And so then it's Pearsall, Montreal Johnson, ETN. And then Montreal Johnson got hurt, too. So at that point, you're looking at ETN and you're looking at Ricky Pearsall. Those were your two weapons. And, uh, you know, they really didn't go downfield that much in the passing game, but ETN provided it. And look, I don't know that he's going to go for 172 every game, but I think if you give him 23 carries, he's going to be over 100 every time you do. And and one thing that you probably did notice in this game is they did a lot of gap block schemes where they were pulling guards and tackles when ETN was out there running, which is not something they do a ton of. Usually it's a zone blocking scheme, specifically for Montreal Johnson. It's a zone blocking scheme where you're kind of stretching out the play and then you put your foot in your ground, foot in the ground and you go. Um, ETN is very, very good at those gap schemes where they're pulling guys into the hole. Mm-hmm. And he showed it a couple of times in this game. That was where they got a lot of their big plays. Now we'll see, obviously now op- the opposition is going to have an opportunity to prepare for that. They're going to have some things that they work off of that. Now, one of the things Seth Varnador said this on Gators breakdown last week, I completely agree. One of the things they did in this game is they had those end rounds with little shovel passes to, to Trey Wilson to start the game. Well, that starts to hold the linebackers, which then loosens things up for ETN and Montreal Johnson going up the middle. So all of that stuff works in tandem, but it only works if you've got a guy like ETN who can go flying through the hole, and he was awesome in this one. Yeah, Varnador Films, by the way, great breakdown of uh, of the game too, so be sure to check him out on YouTube. And he's also – with our friend Dave Waters on GatorsBreakdown.com. So be sure to check those out as well. Uh, in the passing game, you, you mentioned Wilson, Will, super active. He, he was essentially owning the first drive, exited early with an apparent left shoulder injury. But what I liked about what I saw there, there seemed to be a commitment to get him the ball. There was a commitment to get him involved early. Uh, according to multiple reports, Napier said that Wilson's x-rays came back negative, meaning he likely suffered a bruise. So that's good news there. Pearsall became the target of choice of Wilson's absence, uh, though the Gators only threw the ball four times in the entire second half. I know Napier talked about maybe they got a little conservative in the second half, but it made sense strategically. They, they had the lead. They run the ball good. So I, I didn't think they did anything that didn't make sense. Mertz ends up a very efficient 19 of 24, 166 yards, one touchdown, and zero interceptions. Uh, this is the type of stat line that Paul Christ would have dreamed of at Wisconsin, man. So this is like exactly – it. like just he's a steady – what we've seen from Mertz so far, steady, productive – and when he could give you that mistake-free effort, Will, like he did here, he had a couple of throws, real tight throws on the sideline where we saw receivers make great catches going out of bounds. Uh, I think I saw uh, Zach Alberverde had a, 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 a Photoshop with that Khalil Jackson on the sidelines next to Michael Jackson where they're both doing the uh, lean. There, it was quite impressive catch there from Khalil Jackson. But there, So he'll take his shots. He takes his chances, Mertz does. But overall, if he can manage the game the way he did on Saturday night and just play a clean, productive game, he can he can make a, a few things happen with his feet too once in a while. Not the not really a running quarterback you want to lean on much, but it that that snap count you talked about late late in the game where where they get Tennessee to jump on that fourth and one. I believe what we just witnessed on Saturday night was the blueprint for success for 2023. This is something we've been wanting to see a real commitment to the running game. Let Mertz manage it. You're not going to see a ton of deep ball shots. This is not, we, we are a long way from the fun and gun 
with this offense, but it's also being tailored to what works for these guys. And I, I thought that was a well-coached game on the offensive side on Saturday night. And I, I want to see, it's like we said with McNeese, I know it's just McNeese, but we saw the commitment to the running game and, and we saw Mertz just play steady football. And I think that's the formula for success with this offensive unit this season. Maybe. I mean, I, I think the, the, so kudos to Mertz, kudos to the offense for being almost perfect in terms of their, their um, operation in this particular game, but they're not going to go seven for eight on third downs in no, every first night. half from here on out. Right. Yeah. So, so the question you have to ask is what's sustainable. I think Trey Wilson coming around the edge is sustainable. I think ETN coming around the edge is sustainable. I think expecting Mertz to be somewhat efficient on third down is probably sustainable, but not that that sustainable. So, you know, chances are if you play that game a hundred times, 90 of those times, Florida settles for field goals a couple of times instead of the touchdowns that they got. I mean, I think they probably get into the red zone, but they end up settling for field goals, which is kind of what we saw against Utah, right? I mean, Utah, they just didn't, they got in the red zone a bunch. They just didn't put the ball in when they had an opportunity, when they were down the red zone, had one field goal to open the game. Then they had the missed field goal, um, you know, and, and sort of didn't recover from there because they started giving up big plays. But, um, but that to me is is the thing is I, I think there's some regression of the mean that's going to be coming for Graham Mertz, which means they're going to have to take some shots downfield and do a few things. I'd love to see it just once a game, run Mills, like as an ode to Spurrier, run Mills. Like that is such an awesome play. It's still hard to defend. Um, and especially the way ETN was running, I think it can be open if you run that sort of play, that sort of scheme out there. If you don't know what Mills is, it's a famous play that Steve Spurrier ran all the time with the fun and gun. It exists. You can run it out of what Florida wants to do. I think there's um, there's some other things they could probably do to take some deep shots out of Napier's offense. But um, yeah, I mean, look, they were very efficient. I'm a, I'm concerned that the efficiency that they had is not sustainable long term. But again, who knows if you can, if you can play this clean, you're gonna you're gonna no, score you're a lot gonna, of points. you're gonna play sloppier than this some nights. This was a nice night. It, you had the two explosive uh, touchdown drives it, it, you had uh, in the first half there, but you had two drives. What I really loved about this offense, you had uh, you had multiple drives over seven minutes long in the first. You just the, the offense just controlled the clock. In the first half, I think they ended up uh, with over 37 minutes of possession on the night, but you kept the ball out of Tennessee's hands. And, and I'll tell you, Will, you almost forget the opening opening bit to this game was a little concerning. You you, you waste seven <laughs> and a half minutes, you go down, you miss the field goal, and then you let Tennessee just explosive play down the field, score a touchdown right out the gate. And they come back and they answer with that big shot from ETN it, 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 I don't know, man. I, there's some, there's some nights uh, in the last couple of years where this team does not respond well to that type of opening. And so we saw a nice response from, from them. Uh, the offense bounces back and they really, they did a nice job controlling the game up front. Yeah. I mean, I think the mental toughness that Florida showed in this one, not just in this particular game after they were down seven, nothing, but also coming off the Utah loss. Right. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. there's a lot of criticism. Right. There's a lot of criticism their way from that loss. I think they took it to heart. They spent two weeks stewing on it and they came out and they were, they were hyper, hyper focused and were able to execute. Now the question is going to be, you've got this game against Charlotte and then the game against Kentucky and it's going to be on the road at noon in Kentucky and Lexington. Are you going to be able to come out hyper, hyper focused? Or are you going to come out like you did against Utah when you're on the road? Like, this is the thing is that, especially with a young team, it's not what is your ceiling and can you reach it? 
it's how often can you reach it and how often do you reach your floor, right? What's the sine wave look like? We talked about it last year with Anthony Richardson, very young player, at least in terms of his playing time. And all of a sudden you'd have one game up, one game down, one game up, one game down. And that was sort of how the whole season went. The The expectation with Mertz is that his ups are not going to be as up, but also that his downs aren't going to be as down. And so he's going to have to do that, right? And the entire team's going to have to do that. Come out in the next couple of weeks and it can't just be a, oh, well, we're going to go through the motions because we showed that we can win a tough game last week. It's like, no, every game in the SEC is like that. And so you know, it's entirely possible that at the end of the year, we'll look up and say Kentucky's a better team than Tennessee. And so Florida's still going to have to get ready for these guys coming up on their schedule. Look, these are all teams that Florida could beat. And if Florida does beat them, then all of a sudden we got a cocktail party that's a whole lot of fun. But it's a long way to get to that cocktail party at this point, and you're going to have to come in focused every single time. That's the question. That's the challenge for Napier. It's easy to get everybody's attention after you get your butt kicked. It's hard to get everybody's attention when they're being celebrated on campus and you know everybody's throwing them free drinks and stuff at the bar when they go out on Friday night and Saturday night. Um, you know, there, there's there's still work to be done. They're only three games in, and so uh, you know, can the team take that business attitude? Or is it going to be one where it goes up and down? I think that's the question we're going to end up answering over the next few weeks. Yeah, certainly, certainly uh, some winnable games here if you play like we saw on Saturday night. So, but I'm happy for Napier. Get he gets the crazier part of our fan base off his back a little bit. So that win should should sustain him for a stretch. But uh, till he loses again, yeah, till he loses <laughs> again, it, it won't it won't last forever. But it's at least uh, it's at least something for the uh, bulletin board there for Billy. Uh, what did you think about the timeout by Hypel at the end? Um, I believe I called him a uh, a word you'd have to bleep out for the podcast if uh, on our post game show. So if you want Will raw and after dark, you can catch me at you know. 1130 after these games on, on our Patreon channel. Now I thought, I thought it was a, I thought it was a bitch move. I, I thought if you're going to go out there and, and call that timeout, like you should have to face the consequences. And look, I think that's one of the reasons why everybody only got suspended for a half is it's like, eh, everybody's playing a cupcake anyway. Mm-hmm. We'll give, we'll give Mazuka and we'll give some of these other guys a half game off and no one's really going to complain or, 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 uh, you know, have any issues, but, um, you know, look, I, I think Heupel didn't have to do it. He knew he didn't have to do it. He did it anyway. And that's, you know, it reveals something about his character. Yeah. I, I don't have any issue with the fight either. I think that was, it was awesome seeing those guys respond and protect Mertz. Uh, the cheap shot by Tennessee there at the end didn't need to happen. I know Mertz was dragging it out, but the only reason that play happened is because you called you had your one timeout, which by the way, why didn't you use that at any other point? <laughs> use that in that situation is hysterical. Why were you even sitting? You're down by two scores and you're still sitting on that timeout in that situation. After using the first two timeouts of the half on the first drive, if I'm not mistaken, of the, the second first half, five plays. It was yeah, like, so it was like there were 12 minutes left it in, just, the, in the third There was quarter. no logical sense to it. And then you create the environment for that situation to occur. So that's absolutely on high bull and our our offensive line if uh people didn't go to bat for Mertz after getting a cheap shot I would have more of a problem with that so I have zero issue with that and uh that picture of Mizuka that's gonna be it's gonna be up there for a while there I like I like that picture of Mizuka that was good all all I know (laughs) is that uh out of all the feuds we've had with opposing head coaches it's more fun to have a feud with Josh Heupel than it is with Eli Drinkwitz so, uh, you know, if, if these are the guys yeah. were, if, if Tennessee are the guys we're getting a little bit chippy with great, 
Like in the past, it's been the Missouri, and it's like we shouldn't even care about Missouri. We should be beating them by fifty. Like, right. why? Why are yeah, we? You want to have to use with someone Missouri? who's at least moderately relevant. Yeah, there you go. Not, not Eli Drinkwitz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you see any? Uh, did you like that uh, little penalty there before that kick with Eli this weekend? Oh my God! A delay a game, a delay a game to push his game-winning field goal attempt back to sixty-one yards. And uh, the dude still hit it, saved his butt. Like I had the Kirby all, all, uh, all locked and loaded, man. The award was coming if, uh, if Drinkwitz let that one through. Cause man, is that terrible to have a delay of game on a game winning field goal. That's 56 yards long. And all of a sudden push it back to 61. Whoo kicker saved his butt. Eli, Eli, Eli. All right, let's move on here. Well, if the win over the Vols wasn't enough, Napier capped off the weekend by securing a commitment from 2025 running back Waltez Clark out of Tampa Plant. He's listed at 6'1", 194 pounds on 24-7 sports. Clark looks like he has the frame to add another 20 to 30 pounds easy without sacrificing a bit of speed. Big dude. Big dude. Uh, smooth runner. He's more of an upright running style, but there's plenty of highlights where he just goes completely untouched into the end zone. And to illustrate that a little better here, 87 carries last year for 863 yards. That's an average of 9.9 yards per carry and 18 touchdowns, meaning he scored approximately 20% of the times he, he touched the ball in a running situation. But in addition, Will, he also proved to be a bit of a receiving threat as well. He caught 27 passes for 512 yards and four touchdowns last year for plant. Yeah, man. So the first thing I thought when I heard about upright running style, six, one, one ninety four was theatric face on. And I went and looked C four was six foot two Oh seven. So this guy's taller than C four and is probably going to end up a little bit heavier than him, but still has the kind of speed to make those big plays, at least at the high school level. The question will be, how does that translate? But look, I mean, one, if you were a running back after watching that game, like, why wouldn't you commit? (laughs) Like, I'd literally be like, Oh, I'm going to get the ball 23 times and be the star. I'm happy to do that. And, and then the other thing is, is this is a guy who ranks on 24 seven composite 160th overall. That's right around where ETN was last year. But more importantly, this is someone from plant high school in Tampa, Florida. This is the kind of player who has gone outside of the state. And you look at the other teams on his list, Alabama, Arkansas, and Auburn and Florida state. He was just on unofficial visits, March 21st and September 9th. So he does an unofficial visit at Florida state, March 21st, then July 29th visits Florida unofficially, then Florida state, September 9th, then Florida, September 16th and commits. Right? So this is a guy who looked at the two real in-state schools and said, I'm going to go to Florida over Florida state and also pick them over Alabama, Arkansas, and Auburn. So uh, you've gotten, you know, we've talked extensively about the circle around Gainesville. This is a guy who falls squarely within that circle. And so not only is it that you're getting a good player, not only is it you're getting a guy with a very different physical profile than the other guys that you brought in at running back. But really to me, this is an indication and we'll see whether this happens in sticks for 2025, but this is an, you know, 2024 is recruiting classes, a lot of outside, of the state of Florida and then sort of supplementing with the state. What I'm really hoping to see in 2025 is a locking down of the state of Florida and supplementing from out of state. Do it the other way around because there's enough talent in the state of Florida to 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 make this class elite. And so this is the first step, right? You, you got to get guys like this in the fold and it's great to have Clark on board. 
Absolutely. The only disappointment I've experienced from Billy Napier in the with in the running back room so far is that we don't get the privilege of, of watching uh, Camp Carroll play some football this year because that guy looked like he was going to have an interesting be an interesting third option in the running back room. Unfortunately, gets hurt at the beginning of fall camp, and we're, we're not going to see him this year. I really trust this staff with running backs. They they seem to know what they're doing. They had a great track record at Louisiana as well. So Billy Napier likes a running back. Yep, I, I buy it. I'll, I'll buy it pretty quickly, Will. Yeah, look, I mean, the other than the Utah game and other than the Oregon State game last year, this team has always been elite on the ground. And when they're not, <laughs> they don't score. But the minute that they are, they've been very, very effective. And so um, I think if you're a running back, you got to see that, right? One, that you're going to have friends in there to share carries with. But two, that even if you're the number two back in the room, you're still going to get 13, 14, 15 carries. Mm -hmm. And so I think think both of those are selling points. I think running backs are not stupid. They all watched Nick Chubb in that Monday night football game the other night and get his knee just eviscerated, right? Like the risk of being a running back is significantly higher than anywhere else on the field. The wear on the tires becomes important. Important. And actually, this is one of the things I think might keep Billy Napier from writing ETN as hard as would be, um, you know, they may end up losing a game this year because they decide to keep ETN's carries down um, and share them amongst Trayon Webb and, and Montreal Johnson, who are very good players. But, you know, one of the promises I think you make to a running back when he commits is that we're going to prepare you for the NFL for a running back that means really load management, right? That means not giving a guy like the Derrick Henry 400 carries one year. Like Henry's a freak. Like the fact that he's still around in the NFL and still excelling is really an abnormality. Usually when you get a guy with that many carries, they all of a sudden the next year start to experience injuries. And so managing that is a big deal. And it looks like Billy Napier and Jabar Jaluk really do a good job of making sure everybody gets some reps, everybody stays healthy. And, uh, you know, in the absence of a non-contact injury, like with Cam Carroll, like it's not like we've had a whole bunch of like high ankle sprains. It's not like we've had a bunch of a bunch of yeah, injuries due durable. to dings and you know dents and dings. It's just you know you get the catastrophic injury, but other than that, it's been guys who've been out there, been durable, and been available to play. Right. Well, another solid running back prospect heading toward Gainesville commits the the class of twenty twenty five. Believe it's the first commit out of the class of twenty twenty five. Will. Yep, absolutely. So good to get that started, and uh, now we only need four or five stars, and we'll be good. <laughs> All right. Let's move on here. We'll finish up with the Charlotte preview. The Charlotte 49ers are coming into the swamp for the first time in school history here, led by first-year head coach Biff Poji, the former hedge fund manager, state championship-winning high school head football coach in Maryland for many years. Uh, worked with Jim Harbaugh as an analyst at Michigan before uh, returning. I believe he coached with uh, – I believe he, was, he bounced back and forth with St. Francis in Michigan, but he ends up coming down to Charlotte to replace Will Healy uh, in his first season there. The Niners are coming off uh, – they're one and two so far, coming off of back-to-back losses, not particularly close losses either to Maryland and Georgia State. They started the Maryland game up 14 nothing. get an get a offensive touchdown early – uh, pick six, and then I think Maryland ripped off about, oh, 38 points or so in a row. And at one point last week against Georgia State, they were down 34 to 10, so not particularly close in that one either. Uh, notable player here, one-time UF signee, quarterback Jalen Jones, uh, leads Charlotte. Uh, starting. He will be starting at quarterback for Charlotte after stints at both Jackson State and BCC. Uh, certainly 
some transfers on this roster from some power five schools. They were building it that way under Healy as well. But this has not been a program that's been very consistent the last few years. And Pogi's still in his first year. Our Pogi's still in his first year, and he's got to build it up. So I'm really not expecting much from these 49ers coming into the swamp. Will, same thing we saw against McNeese. You just want to see execution in this one. Execute, execute, execute. Play a clean football game leading into that Kentucky game. Uh, stay focused. Don't don't be don't pat yourself too much on the back. Try to avoid the hangover from the Tennessee win. I want to see him run the damn ball. I want to see it early and often. Uh, but I would like to say you alluded to this earlier. I'd like to see a couple deep shots in this one. Really take some shots. Show show uh, the Kentucky Wildcats that you're capable of pushing it down the field. And because uh, otherwise. <laughs> We know Mark Stoops knows how to design a game plan on defense. We've been subjected to it a couple times in the last few years here. And defense, simple note, Will, keep it up. Keep it up. They've been great so far. Let's see them continue. Uh, it, it, back to the back to the message of the offense there, execute, execute, execute. So let's see this defense come out and impress us one more time heading into the matchup with the Wildcats in Lexington. Yeah, I think there's a couple things there. One, I'm going to say the first thing you did when uh... – when you told me about their coach Biff Pogi or Pogi yeah. is Google him. If you're a Florida fan, Google him. It's an entertaining trip down uh, Google images. If you, if you want to, uh, if you want to Google him, just trust me, Google him. It's, it's a good, uh, it's a good trip down, down. The, the images are, uh, you're not going to be able to get them out of your head. Put it that way. Lot, lot, um, big guy, sleeveless shirts, lots of those going on. <laughs> On the sideline, it's interesting. So the other thing is, I, I wouldn't sell them short when it comes to that game against Maryland. They were up 14 nothing after one, but they were up 14-9 at the half, and they were down 17-14 after three. Maryland pulls pulls away in the fourth quarter. Look, Maryland isn't any great shakes either, I don't think, in, in the Big Ten. But but my point is, is that Charlotte is not McNeese. McNeese was an overmatched FCS opponent who Florida could just line up and drive three yards back from the line of scrimmage. I don't necessarily expect that's what they sh- – that's not what they are – expected to do in this one maybe they do it and we go oh okay that's really good they were able to do it again but the idea that they'll just physically dominate charlotte continuously i think there will be times where charlotte gets in the backfield i think there might be a couple of sacks i think there's going to be a little bit of adversity along the way and that doesn't mean florida won't win comfortably but this is a power five or not a, this is a um fbs school it's yeah, not an FCS school. American and, Conference. Yeah, they just they're legit, the American right? Yeah. So we talk about them as a cupcake, and yes, they are a cupcake compared they're to the rest of the SEC. Yeah, but but this is not this is not McNeese, and I think we do need to take right. that into mind. At the quarterback position, I think this is where the defense is really going to make its bones. Is you've got two options. One's Trexler Ivy. He's thrown thirty three passes all year, but he's averaged ten yards a throw. But he's also got five rushes for negative thirty eight yards, so basically sacked five times. And then you've got Jones. You mentioned Jalen Jones. He's got. 41 attempts, but he's only averaged 6.1 yards per attempt, but he's averaging 6.1 yards per rush. And so each of those guys does a different thing. Each of those guys has played in three games. And so the question I think for Florida is going to be, you're going to have to play each of those guys differently. And so in some ways, this actually gives Austin Armstrong the ability to prepare Florida for teams that maybe do have a wildcat formation that do have 
a dual threat quarterback, those sorts of things. How are we going to play those things? How do we play when we think the guy's going to run? What do we not give up when the guy's got a big arm, but can run like all those sorts of things. So look, I, I don't think this one's particularly close. I think Florida wins going away, but I do think this is a better opponent than McNeese. I think we can learn some things from it. And I think specifically at the quarterback position, they have some diversity there. That's going to help diversity in terms of the way those guys play. That's going to help, um, Florida moving forward because they're going to have to scheme for two different guys. And there are going to be times this year where Florida may either have to scheme for two different players or where they're going to have to scheme for a guy who has the skills of both Ivy and Jones. I'm thinking specifically uh, KJ Jefferson when they play Arkansas um, and Jaden Daniels when they play LSU. Those are guys who have the ability to run. Those are also guys who have the ability to throw the ball downfield. How do you scheme for those guys individually? And this will give them an opportunity to do that with that dual-headed quarterback in a way that maybe they wouldn't if it was just you know the guy that McNeese had back there who was, who was pretty much a statue. The defense seems to be on track. There seems to be the commitment to the running game. Mertz is doing a solid job managing the game. Will, can we go through a full game without one catastrophe on special teams? That's <laughs> what I want to see this weekend. Let's get that down this weekend. Um, as long as they keep the offense and the defense operating well, I, I think there are limitations on special teams, and we should probably expect some hiccups there from time to time. Um, it'd be great to get through a game without any hiccups there, but I'd rather see the hiccups there than in the other places on on either offense or defense. Um, look, I think we feel a lot better about this team coming off the wins against McNeese and Tennessee, but the statement that still goes through my head is we didn't feel real good about this team coming out of the coming out of the Utah game. And so, and it was very Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, they averaged 0.6 yards per rush against Utah. They averaged like six yards per rush against Tennessee. So which team's going to show up each game this season? You know, we've had a couple of games where Florida showed up, so we're starting to feel better. But again, last year, if we'd have flipped the last two games of the season with the two wins in the intermediate, like if Florida had been four and six and then it ripped off two wins to go six and six, make a bowl game. And all of a sudden now, all right, you got the bad game against Oregon state, but everybody's already left, blah, 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 blah. Like the, it feels different. Right. So in the midst of a two game winning streak, we all feel really, really good, but we got to remember that it's only a two game winning streak. Cause one of those was a cupcake and really Florida's one one right. So, you know, that's what I'm looking for is I'm looking for, are you going so growth is rarely linear, but what you want to see is that you're not taking four steps forward and four steps back. Like take four steps forward and a step back. Okay, cool. And then next game, take a couple of steps forward. And then maybe the game after that, you take a step back, but you're continuously growing. And can Florida show that throughout the year? And if we get to that Florida State game at the end of the year and this team is a legitimate threat to really take down the Knowles because they've been able to build up to that point, then I think it's a successful 2023 season. If it's something where one week we go out there and look great, like we did against Tennessee and the next week we look like complete garbage, like we did against Utah. Well, that's going to be a frustrating thing for the fans, for analysts. And really, I think even for the players that they're not able to put that performance together week after week after week. So, you know, when you talk about, excuse me, execution. We talk about the defense continuing to hold up there into the bargain. And even when you talk about special teams, in many ways, I think that's what you're sort of talking about is, hey, let's take what we did last week and build on it against Charlotte. Let's not regress back to where we were Absolutely. against Utah. And so we'll see what happens. It was a roller coaster last year. We, we, we rode the ride. I anticipate we'll have some down moments again this year. I, I don't think we're uh, – 
I don't think we're running the table here well, but it's been uh, a roller coaster this year so far. It's just we weren't up at the right. top to start with. Yeah. <laughs> it was we were we up at the, the top gym. of the roller coaster and then they hit the bomb to start the game. And it was like, right. oh great. Yeah, we did the dip right away. But we hey look, we're we gotta follow it up. I think this this schedule, if we play the way we did, I think we saw a high level version of what this team looks like against Tennessee. It's like you said, we're probably not going to seven and eight seven for eight on third down conversions very often, but this team showed what they have in it. If they at least have that ability to, to play at that level. And that was the encouraging part about the winning over Tennessee. In addition to just beating Tennessee is nice. Very much. Well, enjoyed. I mean, I'll tell you, and I said this on Gators breakdown last night, but um, if you haven't had an opportunity to go look through Clay Travis's timeline during the game, like it was <laughs> awesome. It was awesome. And, and I mean, look, you, two of the they're two and seventeen in their last nineteen games against Florida. That is, ridi- that is ridiculous. about not getting from a Vols fan standpoint. Oh, you have man. to be distraught about not getting this done because this was the year to pick us off in the swamp. This was the year to do it if you're Tennessee. But again, I, I, and not to put like, hey, I enjoyed the win like everyone else's big win. We don't know what Tennessee is quite yet either. We don't know. What we don't know what too. anybody is, so right? I think. We'll, I think we'll that's see. the thing. Is we'll see. look. I mean, if you'd have told me that Alabama was going to lose to Texas and struggle against South Florida, um, one, I would have told you that the loss to Texas is probably um, more likely than the struggling against South Florida. Uh, but if you told me that Saban has no idea who his quarterback is, if you told me Carson Beck was going to be sort of meh, um, there. If you told me that A and M was going to get smoked by Miami, like there are a lot of things that have happened so far this year that are sort of out of character for the SEC. And so we're still trying to figure it out, right? It's kind of a soup right now, and you don't really know who's going to emerge from that soup. Right. And the good news is, is Florida might be one of those teams that has the ability to emerge in a much stronger position than they were last year. I think we just need to remember that then heading into next year, where, look, 2022 doesn't doesn't get Tennessee anything this year, right? And they had a lot of turnover, and it showed. And so, you know, Florida's in the same case. That Tennessee game doesn't mean anything the rest of this year. And same thing. If Florida happens to have a good year this year and we end up, say, eight and four, nine and three, um, you know, that means nothing for 2024. You're you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go out there and prove it every single year. And things are a little bit murky in the SEC this year. Good, because it was kind of murky for Florida coming into this year, too. It's nice in some ways to not just have that behemoth up top who looks completely unbeatable. I mean, geez, Georgia was down 14 to three at the half there against South Carolina. And it was like, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> like, and can you imagine if Georgia had come up short and then Florida wins, ten- wins that game against Tennessee? Like, what does everything look like? So there's going to be some weird stuff going on in the SEC this year. And hopefully Florida's a big part of it in the uh, on, on the good side and the win column there. Well, if you want to do a little bit of dreaming ahead here with Florida in terms of positioning yourself, uh, you know, let's, let's forget about the top tier of the sec with the, your Bama's and Georgia's and everything right now. But if you talk about positioning yourself for bowl games, Tennessee plays South Carolina in two weeks, the same day we play Kentucky, the loser of that game is essentially done for any type of consideration. I mean, they, they're neither one of those teams is, is likely playing for an sec championship anyway, but I'm talking about in terms of, uh, of, of positioning yourself in the SEC East, Florida, if they come out with a win against Kentucky, by that night they'll, they'll have a two-game lead over either Tennessee or South Carolina in the East standing. So that that's impressive. That's impressive. Not many people would have picked it to look like that at the beginning of the year. I think uh, Billy Napier 
the Gators at least secured one high water. Hopefully it's not the high water mark of the year, but we had one great moment in the swamp this past Saturday and uh, hey, off and running on 2023. Looking forward to it this weekend against Charlotte, Kentucky to follow. Let's see if the Gators can keep it going. Will, you got any final words before we head out? Uh, just that was a lot of fun. I mean, this is one of those things where I think we remind people or I hope we remind people every year that you only get 12 or 13 of these things. And so you got to enjoy it when they come come along. And this is why you follow and why you stress about recruiting and why you stress about the scheme and the coach and is he the right coach and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. because these sorts of moments are cool. And I wasn't there, but everybody that I know who was in the swamp just said it was a madhouse and it's as loud as they've ever heard it. And that's really cool. Right. And you think about the guy, like you think about a guy like Clark committing, think about DJ Lagway sitting there in the stands, taking in that game. Like the guys who are going to be the Gators who end up winning national championships, if Nate, you're able to get there are guys who were sitting in the stands who heard that and decided that waking up those echoes is more valuable to them than going to a place like Alabama or Georgia where people have already made that climb up the mountain. And so, you know, getting those guys to commit to coming up that mountain and establish that mountain at Florida and bringing back that glory to Florida is a big part of all of this stuff. And so for one night, at least, Florida was on top of the college football world, had the best win of anybody um, in the entire weekend on national TV at seven o'clock, had Herb Street and and Fowler doing the game, big time recruits, swamp sold out, loud as hell. So, you know, that's what we're here for, man. That those are the those are the moments that we that we love this for. So it was an awesome thing to see. Awesome night for Florida. Love seeing some of the Oh, the the Swamp Kings guys uh, in the swamp in the swamp on Saturday night too. Murphy, Stephen Harris, Stephen Harris. For those of you that don't follow this guy on next on Twitter, he's an amazing follow. The guy gets out. Uh, he he wears a Gators jersey to go rollerblading around the neighborhood. The guy is a hilarious follow on Twitter. Uh, but these guys, it seems like there's a little more connection to the program from that era. Uh, from what we're seeing lately, at least publicly, Spikes being back in school probably helps that, I imagine. So it's cool to see some of the old Gators floating around campus there for that win. And uh, Nick Del Torre posted this on, on X2 after the game. Billy Napier is just standing there on the field, what, uh, about 10 till midnight, recruiting, talking to a bunch of, uh, of recruits on the field there. I, I just love seeing it, man. Just It feels like that, that it, I, I love this win for Napier. I love it. I love it that they, he gets to uh, secure a big win like this in front of the home crowd. That Utah win was a great, great start last year, but a rival like this, the narrative last week, I, I know I pushed back on it last week too, where we talked about being owned for rivalry games, get that monkey off his back. He he gets to like really have a solid start to the sec slate this year. And, and uh, I'm happy that it seems like it's going in a good direction across the board right now. Look, man, Florida is in first place in the SEC East right now. And there was an alternative, right? The alternative was they were not in first place in the SEC East. They are in first place in the SEC East. Now, whether they stay there is something that they, in some ways, are going to control throughout this season by how they handle this win, by how they move forward, and and quite honestly, by how some of the other teams they play develop. But, you know, you couldn't have asked for anything more coming before this Tennessee game than having a convincing win at home against the Vols. Um, You know, one of the things you you made a point about when you looked at those when you looked at those rivalry games is you were basically listing off the teams and their rankings and they were all top 15 teams. Well, Florida just took the number 11 team in the nation and whipped them. 
And that's mm-hmm. what you have to do. Like you don't win the SEC without beating high quality ranked teams. And so Billy Napier was going to have to get that done. And at least for one night, he's gotten that done. Obviously, you have to sustain that over seasons, not just a season, not just one game. But you can't get to two until you got to one. Got to start somewhere. So, uh, you know, got to start, start somewhere. somewhere. And hopefully, right. hopefully, this is the game we'll look back on and go that Utah game was a turning point. Everybody came together, and all of a sudden, Florida, maybe not the most talented team in the country, but was one nobody wanted to play by the time you got to the end of the year. And uh, you know, we'll see where we are. I know I'm not running out and buying a Graham Mertz jersey anytime soon. Uh, in turn, I haven't been the biggest Mertz guy on the planet here, but man, it, he is he is a very likable guy behind the microphone and very easy to root for. I, I'll say that in terms of just the likability of this team from what you see from these guys, it's just a very it's a very likable group, and I think it's an easy team to root for this year coming into a season with lower expectations than you're used to at Florida. Uh, If they can overachieve, I I think the fan base is just going to, I mean, you saw it Saturday night, the the place exploded. People are dying for a winner again around here. And uh, just seeing that type of performance, seeing the swamp all lit up, it it, it was great. A great look at what we can be again. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this turns out and if they can build off of it. Dude, you're so negative. I have a number 15 Florida jersey. I, I don't know why you've been so slow to get on See, I'm of the opinion that no quarterback should ever wear that again, but that's just me. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm different because the last two guys have worn it. So I, I think that's a number that you, you don't wear if you're a quarterback at Florida. Let, let, let that, that number belongs to somebody. 15-11. We don't need to see those on quarterbacks. They could be elsewhere. I don't want to see them on quarterbacks again. Hey, you win, you win 12 games. I don't care what number you are as quarterback at Florida. Yeah. It's seven for that matter. You get a Heisman. You win a Heisman and Nat or Natty there. I think we can say you're not you're not wearing that quarterback. So Warful, respect the Warful there too. I left. I didn't mean to leave him up on that. So, all right. Well, hey, another game here against Charlotte. Great weekend of college football ahead in general. Like I know the Gators are not going to highlight that on the national stage, but uh, plenty of football to watch across the board. I know you were up watching Dion in, in Colorado the other night too. So. Uh, they go to Oregon. That, that'll be a fun one. A lot of great games across the board this weekend. Enjoy another great weekend of college football, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.